Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. They wanted to speed their death. They knew that if they broke their legs, they couldn't prop themselves up. They would die of suffocation speedily. But there were prophecies, you see, and there were laws. The law said that the Passover, well, the lamb's bones were not to be broken. And then there was a prophecy that not one bone of his would be broken. So they come to Jesus and they see he's already dead. One of our gospel writers tells us Pilate marveled at that. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Crucified. We're starting in Matthew 27, 44, and we finish up this chapter today. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and we are looking at his final words as he died there on that cross for each one of us. There were a lot of people looking for a Messiah, a Savior, but they don't want the cross. They don't want Jesus on it because it testifies of our sinfulness, our wickedness, our depravity. And they don't want Jesus on it because it, well, it testifies of the fact that if we're going to follow him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross in order to. Even the robbers, we read, were crucified with him. They reviled him, saying the same thing. And from the sixth hour to the ninth, there was darkness over all the land. Here we have Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not his first cry from the cross, but his fourth. And I want to take you back to the first. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The first words from the lips of our Lord, hanging on that cross, after all he endured, Father, forgive him. If you have any doubt that God would forgive you your sin. If you thought, maybe I've gone too far, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin, maybe I'm just too much of a sinner. Listen, to the very ones who handed him over, and, and for the very ones that nailed him to the cross, to those who brutally beat him and mocked him and spat in his face and plucked out his beard, and, and knowing that he was innocent, had him lied about and, and crucified. Listen, he says, Father, forgive him. They know not what they do. And he wasn't just hoping the Father would forgive. He was making possible that forgiveness because he shed his blood for the remission of our sin. He died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. The second thing he cries from the cross is in response to that criminal's Plea, remember me, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Listen, at some point, unless the Lord comes for us first, and there will be a generation, I believe us to be that generation, but first century Christians thought it would happen for them as well, so the Lord could delay his coming. And if he does, well, we know why he does. He does because it's not his will any perish, but all come to repentance. But my point is simply this. There will be a generation that doesn't taste death, that is raptured, that is caught up in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, I believe will be that generation. But if for some reason you pass first, you die first, know this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And if it was true for that criminal that day, who trust in Jesus and never had opportunity to do one thing except trust in Jesus. Know this, when you stand before him in glory, when you breathe your last breath here and open your eyes there, 
The only thing that will get you there is that Jesus died for your sins. Lord, remember me. Forgive me. Lord, I'm guilty. You're innocent. Remember me. You see, that's, that's what worked for him. That's what will work for you. It's not what he did and what you do. It's what he did and that alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He entrusts his mother into the care of John the Apostle and John's care into, well, his mother. And then these three hours of darkness and and somewhere in the midst, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It pointed them, it points us to Psalm 22. Some have suggested Jesus was in such pain, such agony, and now having the sin of mankind placed on him, which he was experiencing, that, that he for the first time sort of, well, he, he was beyond himself. I don't believe that at all. I think Jesus was totally aware completely conscious of what he was doing and what he was saying. You see, those first three statements from the cross all involve others. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, your mother. And now I believe he is pointing those there at the foot of the cross, those who could have and should have known better, back to Psalm 22. We read it. They pierced my hands and feet. They gambled for my clothing. They mocked me. Listen, they're on the cross. They could have put it together. They could have remembered Psalm 22. They knew this was the first line of it. They knew it was messianic. They should have seen, and perhaps some did. He's pointing us back. He's pointing us to the scriptures. Now, there's a a problem this poses, though, theologically, and... The question is this, had the father actually forsaken him? I don't believe the father forsook Jesus for a couple of reasons. One of them we read in Psalm 22. I'll I'll read it to you in a moment, share it with you. But get this, Jesus was operating, functioning in complete, total obedience and submission to the father. I believe the father looking on that scene, hearing Jesus cry, would have, as he had earlier said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because you can never be closer to the Lord than when you were in complete submission to him, absolute obedience to his revealed will. And that's what Jesus was doing right then. Yes, the sin of mankind, your sin, my sin, was placed on him at that moment. And I do believe on a human level, he felt something that, well... If we weren't so numb to the consequences of sin spiritually, if we weren't so affected by the consequences of sin physically, I think we would be sensitive as Jesus was to what takes place. He felt for the first time what we should be feeling. Sin breaks fellowship. It builds a barrier. But the Father wasn't turning away from the Son. No, we read it. Listen, it's part of that Messianic Psalm. Nor has He hidden His face from Him, but when He cried to Him, He heard. There in Psalm 22. Listen, Jesus was so sensitive to the perfect fellowship He'd always had with the Father that 
your sin and mine being placed on him, he felt for the first time, he experienced for the first time that sin separates. Well, he knew it, but he never experienced it. But get this, the separation was, well, it's a paradox. I already said so. It's difficult to even conceive, impossible for us to conceive. How can Jesus be fully pleasing to the Father in absolute submission and obedience and at the same time since separation? Well, sin does that, you see. And I'm always concerned about the physical consequences of my sin. Other people being stumbled or, you know, the obvious things that happen as a result of my stupidity or sin. But the worst of what sin does is it, it separates, it breaks fellowship. Not just with us, but between us and, and our Father in heaven. The fifth thing Jesus has to say from the cross is, I thirst. I thirst. It, it brings us really back to our passage. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they'd heard said he's calling for Elijah. Malachi had prophesied Elijah would come first. And so, well, they were still thinking, maybe this is it. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered to him to drink. The rest said, let us alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know that I thirst was his fifth cry from the cross. The sixth was, it is finished. Powerful words. They literally translate, paid in full. No truer words were ever spoken. It is finished, paid in full. That means the cross, his sacrifice, his shed blood, completely sufficient to cover and cleanse our every sin. And so it's not what he did plus. It's just what he did and we believe and we receive that forgiveness. It is finished, paid in full. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross, and he cries out, paid in full. His final cry, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It again addresses the issue. Was Jesus out of fellowship with the Father? No, he was still in perfect fellowship, absolute submission, perfect obedience, still doing those things that please the Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Well, what happened at this moment? And there are many ramifications of Jesus' death. As Jesus cries out, yielding up his spirit, we read the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Two things. First of all, as it relates to the temple... The veil that they mention here, well, it separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy or the holy of holies. If you're unaware, the temple itself, well, 
It was modeled after the throne of God in heaven. It was meant to point us to realities in heaven. And though the priest could go into the holy place daily to minister, only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies one day a year, the day of atonement. He would take blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. The veil spoken of here separated the holy place where any priest, according to his lot, could go in and function. And the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go in. Well, Hebrews tells us Jesus is our holy high priest. And he has entered not into the the model here on earth, but to the, the real thing in heaven. Sat down at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. The Jews, and I find this interesting, you don't find it in Scripture, but you do find it in history. They went and they sewed that veil back up. It's a graphic picture. Why? Because what was God saying in tearing the veil from top to bottom? Access. You can now come boldly, come freely. Not just the high priest, not just once a year, but we can all come to the throne and find grace and help in time of need. But they sewed it back up. And we read that there is a veil over them. When the scriptures are read to this day, that veil is symbolic of the reality that they just don't see it. They just don't enter in. The good news, someday that veil will be removed. There's something else here, though, we read. And, and it's interesting. I've read it, well, I don't know how many times. It's probably into the hundreds. And yet, for some reason, because it's near the end of the study on the crucifixion and before, well, what we'll look at next time, the resurrection, I sort of passed by it and I'm thinking this is more profound than maybe we take note of. The graves were opened at this great, great earthquake. And the saints who had fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, were raised, coming out of the graves, note these words, after his resurrection. Why? Well, he is the firstborn from the dead. He's got to rise first. They go into the holy city and appeared to many. It's not brought up again, you see, and that's why we pass it by, but it's profound. Consider it. Not only was Jesus appearing to his disciples and to others for a 40-day period after the resurrection, but saints who had died and been buried, they rose again and they start appearing to people around the city. It's profound. Consider it. Well, no wonder so many readily received, so many believed as the Spirit was poured out, as Jesus was testifying, as the formerly dead saints were now walking around alive. Well, we read when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Take note of these women. They follow him. They're always, though he's dead, they're still pursuing. They're bringing precious spices and ointments and they, they want to just tend to his body. They think it's over. But they will be the first, some of them, to, to hear his voice, to see him after his resurrection. Why? because of their love, because of their desire to be near him, even in his death. 
When the evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret agent disciple, see? He was a disciple, but for fear of the Jews, he'd never made it known. He comes with Nicodemus, who we read of in John 3, both of them kind of hiding out, and yet now they're boldly coming to Pilate. They're asking for the body. They asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, and Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, laid it in a new tomb, which he'd hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. A couple of things take place. I want to mention them before we look at these last few verses and consider them together. They're on the cross. They had decided they wanted the bodies down because, well, they, the, the Sabbath was well, coming and, and they, they didn't want to deal with it. And, and so they knew the bodies needed to come down before sunset that Friday evening, before 6 p.m. They'd broken the legs of the thief on one side of Jesus and broken the legs of the thief on the other side of Jesus. They did this to speed their deaths. The reason being crucified, you see, hanging from those nails in their hands and having that nail through their feet, they could only get a breath by pushing up pushing against that nail, excruciating pain, no doubt, but at least an ability to breathe. And then, in order to exhale, having inhaled, they would let down and, and exhale, excruciating pain again in the hands as the full weight of, well, each of them on those nails and on their hands. But there's more. They wanted to speed their death. They knew that if they broke their legs, they couldn't prop themselves up. They would die of suffocation speedily. But there were prophecies, you see, and there were laws. The law said that the Passover, well, the lamb's bones were not to be broken. And then there was a prophecy that not one bone of his would be broken. So they come to Jesus and they see he's already dead. One of our gospel writers tells us Pilate marveled at that. After all he'd endured, he was already dead. Why? Well, we read it. He, he breathed his last. He gave up his breath. He gave up his spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And so they pierced his side you know, water and blood gushed forth. The picture is graphic. The scriptures say without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, no forgiveness of sin. And he bled from the stripes that were placed upon his back. He bled from the crown of thorns placed upon his head. He bled from the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. He bled from the spear thrust in his side. And all of that points us to one reality. He bled and shed that blood for us. Well, at this point, the next day followed the day of preparation. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. Amazing! They, they remember, though his disciples didn't even get it. They got it. 
They said, he said he's going to rise again. Therefore, command the tomb be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And you sense in Pilate in his response, well, something, something stirring. Pilate said, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. Make it as secure as you can. It's almost as if Pilate's saying, man, I hope it's true. I don't know what was going on in his heart and mind at this point. But in any case, he says, you've got a guard. Fifty men would guard that tomb. We'll talk about it next time. And he says, in essence, make it as secure as you can. And they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So Jesus' death on the cross, prophesied in the Old Testament, promised by Jesus himself, well, it happens here in Matthew 27. We know ultimately it's not the end, it's the beginning. He'll rise again on that third day. But these seven statements, they speak to us today. And if you're a believer in Jesus, hear them once more. Consider them afresh. Let them wash over you. If you've yet to give your life to Jesus, oh, let them impact you as they should. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's his will. That's his plan. That's his purpose. That you, that we, that we would all find forgiveness. Today you'll be with me in paradise and someday you will breathe your last and you will either wake up in the presence of God or you will wake up realizing I will forever be separated from the one who made me and loves me and sent his son to die for me. Make a decision for him. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Lord, as we consider you, the radical sacrifice you made, we're truly in awe. We're blown away. And Lord, we don't even have words to express the gratitude we feel. And so as we, in a moment, Lord, we'll be taking the cup and taking the bread, remembering what you did for us as you took that bread and gave it to your disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. As you took that cup, Lord, the cup of the new covenant, your blood shed for the remission, the forgiveness of sins, I pray that you will well, Lord, you'll open up the realities behind them to each and every person. But before we celebrate and share in communion today, let me ask you, have you given your life to the Lord Jesus? As we gather together week after week and now decade after decade, we've watched God bring so many to faith in him. And my question to you today would be, if you were to breathe your last, if you were to, well... If this were your last day to live on this planet, if you were to die tonight, where would you wake up? Do you know that you'd wake up in the presence of God Almighty and, and you'd begin to worship Him there? Worthy are you. You've redeemed us from every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Or would you wake up 
and realize it's true. I'm separated from him. What? Why? Why didn't I respond? Why didn't I give my life to the Lord? Listen, today you have a decision to make. Today is the day of salvation. And it's this simple. If you, like that thief on the cross, will acknowledge you, you know what you have coming. You are a guilty sinner. And the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what we all deserve. But the gift of God, everlasting life. Receive the free gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is grace. What we studied today is grace in action. We know that as children of God, we are forgiven and that we don't deserve that forgiveness. But what we certainly do not deserve is what Jesus went through on the cross so that we could be forgiven. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.